It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. If you would like a free newsletter on this or other subjects, just give us a call at Christian Answers. Phone number is area code 512-218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Or you can email us at cdebater at aol.com. That's cdebater at AOL.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater Ministries. I'm pleased to introduce to my audience a dear brother in the Lord, Richard Bennett, Director of Berean Beacon Ministries, an outreach to Roman Catholics. It is great to be here, Larry. For people that don't know you, you were a Roman Catholic priest for 22 years. Is that right? Please give us a short account of your life. Yes, I was a Catholic priest for 22 years. I was a Catholic altogether for 48 years, having grown up in Dublin, Ireland. I was trained uh, very early on in my education, in what we call secondary and elementary education, uh, by the Jesuits. And then I decided to become a Catholic priest, and I spent eight years in preparation it was a novitiate year, then six years to ordination when I was ordained a priest in Dublin, Ireland in 1963, and then one year in Rome, eight years in all. Then I spent uh, 21 years in uh, Trinidad West Indies as a parish priest carrying out the, the work of a priest. I had the best academic training you could get finishing up in the city of Rome itself near the Vatican, and I... I really had a desire to bring Catholics to uh, what we thought was a way of being right with God so that they could get to purgatory and then that they finally could get to heaven. And I was great for doing penances and sacrifices. And then I was very devout in Trinidad, uh, baptizing babies, hearing people's confessions and doing all the sacraments. It was in 1972, I had a very serious accident where I was three days unconscious after the serious accident. And then after that time, when I got out of the hospital and the sanatorium, I began searching in the Bible for what is truth. It took me 14 years of comparing the Bible to Catholicism before I realized that I was dead in trespass and sins and it was by grace alone that we are saved. I, one night I got on the floor in my house and I cried out to God for faith and his grace to save a wretch like me, dead in trespass and sins, and he gloriously did that. It was about two months afterwards. I very reluctantly left the Catholic Church because my prayer after I was right with God by biblical salvation was that I could really love Catholics and give them the real true gospel of grace. 
that is grace alone, faith alone, and in Christ alone. But then in prayer over those two months after I was saved, the Lord showed me that I could best serve him and love Catholics if I left actually the priesthood and the Catholic Church and reached out to Catholics nonetheless. And um, I, I did that. I left uh, the priesthood in 1985 and uh, reached the States in 1986. And uh, I, um, I just prayed and prayed that I would have a love for Catholics to reach out. I thank the Lord that after one year as a missionary in China, I was able to start the ministry that I now have called BereanBeacon.org. It is to show Catholics the real truth of where salvation is in a person, not in any church, and it is by God's grace, not by any ritual that any church does. So this has been really wonderful. I've seen priests saved. I saw two priests in Poland, you know, through our ministry. We have a Polish webpage, besides many other languages, and of course in English. And I thank God that I have seen God's grace poured out, and that is my heart's desire, Larry, that Catholics would know the truth, and that evangelicals in this very false ecumenical age would see the differences. Uh, I have a very interesting article on the webpage, uh, Are Catholics Christians? And we've had tremendous response to that, evangelicals whose eyes have been opened in reading that article. So it's with love for Catholics and to show the truth of Christ Jesus, that God will be glorified and many, many souls saved, particularly Catholics, and glory of his name. Outstanding. That was a wonderful testimony, Richard. Uh, could you just real briefly tell us about, uh, you've written some books, and you've already mentioned your ministry, but what are these books you've written, and how can people find them? Yes, I have written or edited, uh, written some and edited others, and uh, they have been amazing. I just thank God. Uh, our most well-known book is Far From Rome, Near to God, The Testimonies of 50 Converted Catholic Priests. Since 1994, that book has sold steadily across the world in English and in other languages, and uh, it's on the third edition now. And... Uh, the other book that has my heart really displayed and my love for Catholics is the book I've written about Catholicism called Catholicism, East of Eden, Insights into Catholicism for the 21st Century. This book is uh, published by Banner of Truth Trust, like the uh, book of 50 Testimonies of Former Priests. And... Um, I thank God for that because the Lord has used that book and it brought many Catholics to himself by that book. Uh, the other book that my heart was in, in editing, together with Mary Hertel, is a book called The Truth Set Us Free, 20 Former Nuns Tell Their Stories. And that book has been used mightily of the Lord as well. And I thank God for those women, most of whom are still alive and active in reaching out to Catholics themselves. And it is just a wonderful testimony of God's grace. And the, the other book I've written is called On the Wings of Grace Alone. I've edited that. And that is just 30 ordinary Catholics and uh, what we call lay Catholics and how the Lord brought them to salvation. That is a, an amazing 
book too. How can you obtain these books? Well, go to our webpage, brainbeacon.org, and just go to the folder on the left-hand side, books, and when you click on that, it gives all the details of how you can get those books. Outstanding. Well, Richard, uh, we're going to go into uh, showing people your videos now here across uh, particularly our audience on YouTube, but uh, many people don't know that you and me go to the same church here in Austin, Texas, so it gives me a special opportunity to be around you a lot just so we can do ministry work. But anyway, I want to thank you for allowing us to post your videos uh, on the Internet through YouTube and other Internet servers. We praise God and may souls be saved and the Lord glorified. Amen and amen. Amen. Welcome to the program. We call this program the Authentic Early Church. It is really necessary that we study the Authentic Early Church because the Roman Catholic Church has the audacity to claim that it is the Early Church, going back to the earliest times. And besides this, some Bible believers have scant or little knowledge of what are the facts of the early church. I'm privileged today to have with me Pastor Bill Mancaro, who is well known with biblical studies and historical research and studies. So I'm happy to have him. Welcome, Bill, to the program. Thank you, Richard. It is um, therefore important that we go back and see just where the early church started and what it was founded on. The early church started in Jerusalem and it was founded on the gospel message that as sinners before the all-holy God an individual, be a man or a woman, is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ Jesus alone. It is Christ Jesus as he had proclaimed himself to be the anointed one of God. And it was, he proclaimed to be the son of the living God. It was on him that the church was based. He was the cornerstone the rock on which the church was based. And so the church was founded in the city of Jerusalem. We're told in the scriptures that the church which was at Jerusalem and they were scattered abroad in all the regions of Judea and Samaria. So the early church went forward from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Later on they spread, the believers spread and we had churches in Cyprus and in Antioch. And the, the believers in the first church back in Jerusalem heard that the people at Antioch had believed and they got Barnabas and wanted him to go and build them up in the faith, the true gospel of Christ Jesus. Barnabas went, first of all, to Tarsus so that he could find Paul of Tarsus, who has become the famous Apostle Paul. And he brought him, and they spent a whole year instructing the believers there at Antioch. And it was there at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. The 
church then had this unifying factor that it was based on Christ Jesus. He was the cornerstone. He was the one that they believed on. And it was salvation by grace and by by grace alone and through faith alone and in the person of Christ Jesus alone. And so we come to the whole concept of church to see what the early believers saw was the fact of what church indeed was essentially in the way it was established and how they lived this out. So I'd ask that you, Bill, explain this for us. Well, as you said, Richard, the unifying center of this assembly of believers uh, was not ritualism, was not a hierarchy. It was, in fact, the gospel. And so it's important that we know biblically just what church means in Scripture. What is the concept of church? Uh, The Greek word ecclesia uh, literally means the called out ones. In the New Testament, it's applied to the whole company of believers of whom Christ said, I will build my church. The Apostle Paul's definition under the direction of the Holy Spirit is that the church is Christ's body. So, most regularly, the word signifies the local assembly of believers. The expression, the church of God, was a collective idea, a a group, a congregation of, of believers. As when the Apostle wrote, give none offense neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, meaning the believers, and that's as, as distinguished from the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-believers in Christ. The ordinary believers are continually called the church, as the apostle addressed them. Uh, and for example, he said, quote, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Uh, and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans for example. See, the church was simply the community of believers. This is an important concept. Uh, The church is not an official structure, an organization. Uh, It's simply the community of believers. Uh, All the messages given by the Lord through the Apostle John, for example, in the book of Revelation, were to local churches. The central feature of the churches was the gospel of grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Uh, as, for example, expressed by the Apostle Paul uh, in Ephesians, for it is by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, these local churches believed and taught the gospel of God's grace. That gospel for them was, in the words of Scripture, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believed. Faith alone, and faith, of course, consistent with the Scriptures, was the means by which the believers entered into the salvation purchased by the perfect life and blood sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Across Middle East Asia and Europe, local churches were established as ordinary believers spread the gospel. Yes, it is important to see that local churches were established from Jerusalem and then in different parts of the world. And we have some historical record of some of the early leaders of these local churches. And there is a quite well-known book that is fully documented. And I want to quote from that some of the exact words from 
the early believers so that we know exactly what they said. And I'm quoting from the quite well-known book called The Primitive Doctrine of Justification Investigated by George Stanley Faber. For example, we read in this book about Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was born about the year 69, and he died a martyr in about uh, the year 155. He testifies about being saved through grace and Jesus Christ. His exact words were the following quotation. The Lord Jesus Christ, in whom ye believe, knowing that through grace ye are saved, not from works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. End of quotation from Polycarp. And then we had, quite well known to Clement of Rome. He died about the year 100. He wrote about being justified by faith. His exact words were the following quotation. Therefore, we also being called through God's will in Christ Jesus are not justified through ourselves, neither through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works, but through faith. End of quotation from Clement of Rome. Quite well known too is Justin Martyr, who was born about the year 100 and died about the year 165. He wrote about being justified on account of faith. His exact words were the following quotation. It was not by reason of circumcision that Abraham was testified of God to be righteous, but on account of faith. For therefore, before he was circumcised, it was said of him, Abraham believed in God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. End of quotation from Justin Martyr. Irenaeus, known as well, he died about the year 190 or maybe as late as 202. He clearly explains the Apostle Paul's message in Romans chapter 3. Irenaeus wrote the following quotation. When Christ came, he accomplished all things and still in the church continues to accomplish the New Testament foretold by the law even unto consummation. As also the Apostle Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, but now without the law the righteousness of God is manifested, being testified by the law and the prophets. For the just shall live by faith, but that the just shall live by faith had been foretold by the prophets. End of quotation from Irenaeus. The spread of the Christian faith during the first three centuries was very rapid, uh, very extensive. Uh, in the providence of God, there were several main reasons for this. Uh, and some reasons we don't often uh, often think of. Uh, one was, the, of course, the fidelity, uh, the zeal of the preachers of the gospel. Another was the heroic deaths of the martyrs. Now, you, the enemies of the church thought killing 
the Christians uh, would wipe out the church, weaken the church. In fact, it had the opposite effect, uh, and a saying came to be uh, very well known, uh, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, When the blood of the martyrs is spilled, uh, it produces strength and growth in the church, and that certainly was the case. Uh, Another reason for the spread of the Christian faith, especially during the first three centuries, was the translation of the scriptures uh, into the languages of the Roman world. And uh, one that people often don't think of is the well-developed and expansive roadway system constructed under Roman authority under which the gospel is carried. Remember the Lord put uh, the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in a certain time and a certain place uh, and it was a perfect time for the spread of the gospel with trade routes, with the Roman Empire being so well-developed, uh, the gospel could spread all over the, the known world. Under Emperor Septimius Severus in 193-211, to when he was ruling, uh, Christians suffered terribly. This is part of the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. Uh, the most severe persecution was under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, uh, and his co-regent Galerius uh, during the years 303 to 311 A.D. The historian Philip Schaff said, says, quote, all copies of the Bible were to be burned, it's under Diocletian and Galerius. All Christians were to be deprived of public office and civil rights. And last, all without exception were to sacrifice to the gods upon pain of death. If you didn't, unquote, if you didn't sacrifice to the, to the pagan gods, you were to be killed, uh, and very painfully as well. But far from exterminating the Christians in the gospel, the persecution purified those who preached and increased their ability to give the gospel message. We now come to Vaudois, the early believers. Now, some of the Vaudois had left Rome because of the persecution and went to the Carthian Alps, which in modern terms is northern Italy and southern France in the, in the Alps, and they took up residence there. And these believers, going back to apostolic times, are really interesting because their faith was based on the scriptures and the scriptures alone. For them, it was the only rule of faith, the authority of the written word. Now, we will later on document much more about the Vaudois, but uh, just a mention of them as a remarkable people who were the early church in uh, the northern part of Italy, going up into southern France in the Cartier Mountains. And then we had the group called the Paulinus, they go back at least to the 7th century, if not before, in what is now modern Turkey, and they suffered under the Byzantine persecution, uh, particularly under the Emperor Constantine Pogonatus, who issued a decree against them in the year 684 to persecute them. And the Paulinus refused to worship any icons or images of Christ or the Father of the Holy Spirit. They refused this and they tenaciously held to justification by faith alone and grace alone and in Christ alone. And this is why they were called 
the Paulicians because it was after the doctrine and teaching of the Apostle Paul. Their faith spread into southern France in a group called their, the Albigenses. They were really uh, Paulicians, same faith as the Apostle Paul explains in Romans and in the other epistles, and they lived there in uh, in southern France, in and around the city that is there at the present day called Albi. Uh, they have remarkable history until, of course, they were persecuted by Rome under the horrendous decrees of uh, Innocent III many, many centuries later. But they had a really interesting life for their Agriculture was so well developed and the church is so well established right across southern France. And they, they were an example of the um, politicians living in France with a different name, but the same faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ Jesus alone. We even have the historian, quite well known, the secular historian, given writing in the well-known book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he talks about the, the, Paul, the Paulicians. He says the visible assemblies of the Paulicians of the uh, Albigois were extirpated by fire and sword. The bleeding remnant is, escaped by flight, concealment, or Catholic conformity. The disciples of St. Paul who protested against the tyranny of Rome and embraced the Bible as the rule of faith and purified their creeds from all visions of Gnostic theology, end of quotation from Gibbon. The Paulicians held to an orthodox view of the Trinity and an orthodox biblical view of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And so they were remarkable believers and we have seen different parts of the world where they spread the faith too and uh, we are really thankful for the early church as represented by the the politicians. Richard, earlier you mentioned the Badois, sometimes of course called the Waldenses uh, in the Alps of of, uh, southern France, northern Italy, uh, the valley people um, protected in their valleys. Uh, the, uh, the, they take their name, uh, Waldenses, uh, after the name of one of their famous leaders, uh, Peter Waldo of Lyon. Uh, they were of ancient and truly apostolic origin. Uh, it is thought that they were able to maintain the ancient faith of the apostles of the early church because they were uh, in these valleys and hidden in, in, in an area that was virtually inaccessible to those who did not know the territory. So it was very difficult uh, for uh, outsiders to influence them. Uh, so they maintained the original apostolic faith. Uh, the first distinguishing characteristic of the Vaudois or Waldenses was the authority and popular use of the Holy Scriptures. They anticipated the Reformation in that sense. Uh, the Bible, as many people know, was a, a closed book. It was the people were not allowed to have the Bible uh, in the uh, uh, under Roman rule, particularly Roman church rule, uh, for many many years. Uh, but the Waldenses had 
the Bible, and in this they anticipated, as I said, the Reformation. The Bible to them was a living book, as it surely is. And there were those among them who, believe it or not, could quote the entire book from memory. The second distinguishing characteristic of the Bois or Waldenses, was their moral and orderly daily behavior in accordance with Scripture. They lived what they believed. The third characteristic was the importance of preaching and the rights of believing men to exercise the preaching function. Many centuries after the initial preachers in early post-apostolic times, uh, in the late 12th century, Peter Waldo and his associates were also preachers. To these fundamental characteristics that I've mentioned, the Waldenses, uh, based on the Sermon of the Mount, added the rejection of oaths, the condemnation into purgatory, the theory of purgatory, and prayers for the dead. They rejected those. Uh, they believed there are only two ways after death, the way to heaven and the way to hell, which is exactly what Scripture teaches. In 1487, Pope Innocent VIII's army invaded the valley of the Waldenses. And the Waldenses fled to a huge cave. Now, the Pope's armies fought the Waldenses for many, many, many years. Uh, but in particularly in 1487, it was the most horrendous time. Uh, the Waldenses finally fled to a huge cave. The Pope's men piled up wood and brush at the entrance and set it on fire. Afterward, there were found over three thousand people dead inside that cave, including 400 infants who were suffocated in their mother's arms. The Vaudois or Walden's Waldensian movement touched many, many people throughout many centuries and attracted converts across Europe, commencing in post-apostolic times from what is now northern Italy and southern France. Now, the expansion of Christianity in Asia is also a very fascinating story. About this, Moffat writes, quote, Before the end of the first century, the Christian faith broke out across the borders of Rome into Asian Asia. Its roots may have been as far away as India or as near as Edessa in the tiny, semi-independent principality of Osrone, just across the Euphrates. From Edessa, according to tradition, the faith spread to another small kingdom 300 miles further east across the Tigris River, the king of Adiabene, with its capital at Arbail, near ancient Nineveh. By the end of the second century, missionary expansion had carried the church as far east as Bactria, which is uh, what is now northern Afghanistan, and mass conversions of Huns and Turks in Central Asia were reported from the 5th century onward. So you see how the gospel spread tremendously. Uh, by the end of the 7th century, Persian missionaries had reached what they called the end of the world, the capital of the Tang Dynasty in China, unquote. Yes, and that is most interesting, the spread of the faith through Asia. And uh, interesting also is the spread of the Christian faith in uh, Northern Europe, in Ireland. Ireland is a remarkable story of the early church. And it goes back to one man in particular, Patrick. Patrick was born in Roman Britain, what is now Scotland, in the year 370. 
three. His father was a deacon in the Bible-believing church, and his grandfather had been a pastor. These facts are recorded in Patrick's own testimony of faith, and we have historical record of the actual, that this is an authentic document going back to Patrick himself. Patrick, with associates, fellow evangelists, set out for Ireland in the year 405, in or about, that's nearly a precise date. And the work of the gospel was most difficult for Patrick and his associates. It was because paganism ruled in Ireland and it was Druids, a false form of calling up spirits and mysticism and the evil religion of the Druids. As you go through Ireland to this day, you can still see some fields where the Druids had been. It's, a, it's quite interesting. The Druids, it's a, it's a big part of Irish history, but this is what Patrick came against, and he preached the gospel of God's grace, that we are saved by the righteousness of Christ Jesus and faith in him. And it's amazing how Patrick and his fellow evangelists spread the gospel for 60 years right across Ireland. And uh, it's uh, also a known fact that just as the days of the in the year there is 365 churches that are reckoned to have been formed in Ireland under Patrick and his associates. A remarkable story that is true historical fact that the gospel went forth and churches were founded right across Ireland. Amazingly. And these were churches like biblical churches like Timothy and Titus had set up. These were where the assembly of believers was the church and there was an elder or a pastor, not to lord it over the people, but to help to teach and to make, make sure that there was discipline and order in the church. Patrick was well known too for monasteries. Now these were not like monasteries that were set up after Patrick. Monasteries by the Catholic Church where people came aside to be more locked up and to be celibate and never to get married and all of this stuff that the Catholic Church did. These were monasteries where men came aside to study the scriptures and to know the gospel message and to be trained to be evangelists and to go forth where Patrick had come in with his associates and now they trained others to go forth to get the gospel message right across Ireland. And so these were the monasteries. Later on, these men, for the most part, got married, settled down in their families of their own. But they went aside in the monasteries to be trained in the scriptures and in the true gospel message. And this is remarkable. So much so that Ireland became known as the Isle of Saints and Scholars. It's just, it just remarkable, the history of Ireland, and I say this with some joy because I'm an Irishman myself, and this is the legacy of Ireland. It was not only the legacy of Patrick and his associates, but it went on for 600 years after Patrick. That's a long, long time. And where not only was the gospel message still maintained in Ireland and preached right across Ireland, but Missionaries went forth to other parts of the world, and some of those were quite well known. 
I was in Scotland touring and preaching and teaching in Scotland in 2008, and it was interesting. I was at one church called Church of Columba. <laughs> he was a famous Irish missionary that went forth from Ireland to evangelize in Scotland in the year 563. Columba was quite well known, and also was Columbanus. He set out to evangelize France and uh, Germany in 612 uh, with, with other associates. He, he, he set out Columbanus. And then we had Killian, well known also. He set out with other brothers accompanied him to go to Franconia and Walsburg in 680. For Nanan and with 12 other brothers and the Lord set out to bring the gospel to Belgium in 970. Irish missionaries carried the gospel to different parts of the world. For example, to Britain, Germany, France, uh, Switzerland, Italy, and beyond. It is an amazing story of the early church in Ireland and then the early church in Ireland establishing churches in different parts of Europe. Well, Richard, that is certainly an amazing, amazing story. Uh, turning from Ireland and, and environs to the city of Rome. The history of the early believers in the city of Rome is very encouraging. The first pastors uh, and churches in Rome had a true and living faith uh, in God's grace through the gospel. They had a biblical faith. Uh, from the letter of Paul to the Romans, one sees that the gospel was faithfully treasured in those early Roman congregations. Uh, at the beginning of the letter, the epistle to the Romans, uh, Paul commends the believers at Rome for their faith. He says, quote, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Now, such approvals are infrequent with the Apostle Paul and yet he commends uh, the church at Rome for their faithfulness, uh, that their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, as he says. Now, the faith of the churches of Rome continued to be very well known and faithfully lived for 250 years, um, 250 years more, under very adverse conditions, uh, including extreme persecutions, as we know, uh, the most famous of which, of course, took place under Emperor Nero in 64 A.D., Perhaps you've read of the horrible things that Nero did, uh, um, including taking Christians and, uh, and dousing them with uh, pitch and, uh, while they're still alive and sticking them on his garden wall and lighting them as human torches, living um, or dying in agony uh, for his amusement. Totally unimaginable, though, for these early believers in Rome who stuck to the scriptures faithfully would be the present concept of the most holy Roman pontiff. Uh, unthinkable likewise would be the belief that rituals uh, could confer the grace of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the fellowship of believers, a top-heavy hierarchical system uh, from layperson to priest, from priest to bishop, bishop to cardinal, cardinal to pope, that would have been totally unthinkable, totally abhorrent uh, as being from the world and not from Christ. Christ, who said, one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren, with the Holy Spirit. The persecution of Christians 
in Rome, the Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire, ended in 313. Uh, in fact, the uh, both Western and Eastern. And that year, the emperors, who were Constantine in the West, Licinius in the East, proclaimed the Edict of Milan. That decree established the policy of religious freedom for both paganism and Christianity. Uh, four vice prefects governed the Roman Empire under Constantine, and under his authority, the Christian world was to be governed from four great cities. Those cities were Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Rome. Uh, over each city was set up a patriarch who governed the elders of, of his domain. That was later called a, a diocese. The mind of the purpose of Constantine was that the Christian churches were to be organized in a fashion similar to the government of the Roman Empire. We see that today in Roman Catholicism. It's modeled on the Roman Empire system. Uh, and the respect enjoyed by the various Christian elders was in proportion to, usually, to the status of the city in which they resided. Uh, and there were big controversies about that and big fights among uh, the, the various bishops. And one would say, uh, well, I'm, I'm the bishop of, of Rome. I should have the preeminence, the seat of the Roman Empire. Uh, and the Bishop of Jerusalem and said, well, who better to be the, the chief bishop than the Bishop of Jerusalem where the church, uh, where the Lord started, uh, the Jesus Christ uh, was incarnate. Uh, so there were big, big fights about that, and Rome, as we know, eventually won. Since Rome was, from a worldly sense, the most powerful and prestigious city of the time, it was rationalized that the most prominent and influential bishop should be the Bishop of Rome. So gradually that came to be the case. Uh, gradually, his, the honor and respect given to him grew. Uh, the Church of Rome, however, went into great decline. In the 4th and 5th centuries, the bishops of Rome then demanded to have more recognition for their exalted position. So they grew in influence and power as the Church uh, declined and fell more and more into uh, uh, pagan rituals and ceremonies and, and uh, such things. Also in the 4th and 5th centuries, as the gospel was watered down, its rightful place was taken by ritualism and ceremony. The true worship of God, the inner uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit gave way to external externalisms, formal rites, uh, idolatry. Pagan practices were also introduced, and they were whitewashed with an external form of Christianity, much as Christ uh, said the Pharisees, uh, you know, they, they, uh, these people uh, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Uh, they uh, uh, outwardly uh, have all the rites and the rituals down, uh, but as he said, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. Outside you appear pure, the inside you're full of rottenness. Uh, and that's what we had with, uh, with uh, the, on, the increasing influence of Rome and instituting these rituals in the place of the gospel. Uh, the clergy-laity division of the church uh, became the accepted base. Uh, that further devolved into this hierarchy of the ruling clergy that I mentioned a few moments ago. By the end of the 5th century, a sacrificing priesthood was introduced in which the priest presumed to mediate between God and the believer. Uh, and that replaced the early ministers of the gospel who had simply taught the scripture. Uh, now, Scripture says no such thing, specifically says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
but this was thrown out by Rome. It said, no, it's the priest is the mediator between God and man. The church was no more the fellowship of believers under Christ Jesus, united by the gospel, united by true worship, uh, united by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather it became an institution dominated by a hierarchy of bishops and, and elders. And simultaneously from the early to the mid-fifth century, the city of Rome was beset by invaders, uh, first by Alaric the Goth, who captured it in the year 410 AD, but he didn't stay to rule. Next came Attila the Hun, who in 452 was persuaded by Leo, who was the bishop of Rome at the time, to stop his advance and leave Italy altogether. Finally, Genseric, leader of the Vandals, captured the city, but was persuaded by Leo, again, to spare the lives of the Romans. As a result, Leo's fame as Rome's protector grew enormously, and his power as the Bishop of Rome also grew enormously and developed into the Roman pontiff being, for all intents and purposes, the successor to the Caesars of the Roman Empire. Yeah, that is really important to see how the barbaric invasions really played into the hand of Rome. And something else was really going to help Rome, and that was that the emperor moved from the city of Rome to Constantinople in the year 330. And this enormously helped the Pope now to take the place of, of the emperor to, to attempt to get civil power beside the spiritual power that he claimed. We saw that the barbaric people were becoming converted and one of the well-known of these barbaric people was the Franks, Clovis, king of the Franks, uh, uh, the head of those people who were uh, invading Rome and coming to uh, take over was Clovis. And Clovis accepted the faith of the Roman Church. Not Christian faith, but the faith that was practiced in Rome. He had made a vow on the battlefield when he was defeating the Alemanni that he would be baptized if he won the battle. And so he was baptized, and it was in the year 496. And the, the Bishop of Rome gave him the title, the eldest son of the church. And that was one of those uh, uh, famous uh, people who had converted to the faith of Rome. Others in the 6th century followed. The Burgundians of southern Gaul, the Visigoths of Spain, Swabia, Portugal, and the Anglo-Saxons of Britain followed suit and joined the religion of the city of Rome. They submitted to the beliefs that there was a bishop of Rome that they looked to and that a person is made right with God through rituals or what was later on to be called sacraments. And so this type of religion did not 
differ that much from the paganism with which they came, who people look to an authority for their being somehow accepted with God, and they look to rituals. So they believed in the rituals of Rome. And so we had tribes of people who had been pagans now being converted to the religion of the Roman Catholic Church as it was initially, uh, with no gospel, belief in ceremonies, and belief in the position of the Pope, or the, the Bishop of Rome, he wasn't called the Pope at the time, but to be the head or the one who was controlling or managing the church. Now there was a, a decision from one of the emperors who had left, uh, the emperor left, we know, Constantine left, and one of the successors, well-known Justinian, in the 6th century, made a decree, a formal decree in writing, that the Pope of Rome was to have civil authority in the city of Rome. He not only was to be recognized spiritually, but he was to have civil authority, and he could rule in the city of Rome. And so the popes began to take up civil authority and began to use coercion for those who did not accept their spiritual rule or now their rule because Justinian had decreed in a quite well-known decree that the Bishop of Rome was to be recognized in this way. It became even more so later on as another emperor focus quite well known who ruled from Constantinople from 602 to 610. He was at the same time as a man who became Pope in 607. Boniface III came along and Boniface wanted to be recognized by Focus. Much more than Justinian had recognized the the Bishop of Rome before, he wanted to be recognized in two ways in particular. He wanted to be recognized as the one who was seated where Peter had been seated in Rome as Bishop of Rome. Now this idea that Peter was Bishop of Rome is a tradition that he was trying to call upon not even a very strong tradition because there's no mention whatsoever in Scripture of Peter ever being in Rome. Where he was is outlined in Scripture very clearly where Peter went to. No mention of Rome. When Paul was in Rome, writing from Rome, he never mentions Peter. Peter is never mentioned as ever even being in Rome, let alone Bishop of Rome. But Boniface III wanted to be recognized by Phocas, the emperor, as being in the place of Peter as bishop of Rome. And then he wanted to be recognized officially in law as being the universal bishop with authority over other bishops in the known world at the time. And so it was that Phocas, in a decree, recognized these two claims by Boniface III, and that the Roman Church has gone on from that time to still purport the lie that they are the church who 
seated where Peter was seated on their uh, inane and even groundless tradition and uh, that their bishop is universal bishop having authority over other bishops so this is where it really went back to Boniface III and then the popes were to use this civil authority that they got from Justinian and Peter from Focus to persecute and come against true believers. Crusades were sent out from papal Rome, and that's a whole story in itself. And then the Inquisition that started on the third. This went on for 605 years. And Rome was to become well known for its persecution. It is reckoned by historians and it's by credible historians that up to 50 million people suffered, were tortured and put to death under the Inquisition. So this is uh, an amazing thing and we have documented that in the separate DVD and uh, it is fully recognized by reputable historians. So this is the amazing history of paper gold of bringing in horrendous persecution and trying to have people submit to that. It was a place in which the Roman Church grew in, grew in importance. But while they grew in importance in those early years, for 200 of these early years, it became an immoral, mostly an immoral, and a moral hierarchy with the Pope leading in immorality. There were 200 years of absolute debauchery and, and uh, wildness of living in the, in, in the very place where they claimed to be, in the place of Peter, and it was unbelievable history whereby some of the popes reigning in their teens and some of the immoral offspring of the popes in the cardinals and later on popes themselves. It was, it's horrendous history. But this, this went on for 200 years until the 11th century. In the 11th century, there was a quite famous pope, Gregory VII. Gregory had been Hildebrand before he became Pope, and he's still known as Hildebrand in many of the historical records. Hildebrand, Gregory VII, set up to reform the Church by discipline, and to weed out immorality, and to bring about a definite control over the lives of bishops and the Pope himself under Hildebrand or Gregory leading the way in discipline and in a really strict discipline type of living. So this is quite interesting. But it was from that time, Gregory VII, that a more deadly persecution came in and very subtly because from this time on, the popes are going to claim to have civil authority over kings and princes where they're, 
they say that the Church of Rome was not only the universal church, but it has authority over civil powers. And uh, it's amazing how many of the, uh, the, the kings and princes gave in. And that was one of the reasons why the Inquisition succeeded, is that uh, kings and princes obeyed what the popes said to them because they looked upon their kingdoms were subject to the kingdom that the Catholic Church claimed to have. So this is amazing turnaround with Hildebrand Gregory VII brought in in the 11th century and things did not change whatsoever. They went from bad to worse right up to the 16th century. But in the 16th century we had a remarkable turnabout in what was called the Reformation and I'd ask you, Bill, to explain the Reformation. Certainly, Richard. Uh, the Reformation in the 16th century restored the church to what it had been at its beginnings. That certainly was the, uh, was the uh, in, in obvious intent of the Lord uh, through God's providence. Uh, by What do we mean by Reformation? Uh, simply the word reform, reforming the church back to what it originally was in apostolic times, reforming the church. Thus we get the word reformation, uh, Protestant reformation. Uh, restoring the church to what, back to its beginnings. Uh, the five biblical principles accepted uh, among the reformers were the key to this reforming restoration of the gospel of grace. These principles stated that in all matters of faith and morals, the final authority is the Bible and the Bible alone. Now, before the, uh, before the all-holy uh, uh, situation, uh, uh, before the holy God, rather, an individual is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. An individual is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that is, faith in Christ, through in Christ alone. Following on this, all glory and praise to God alone. Reforma the, uh, the Reformation possessed definite characteristics, uh, many of which set it apart from any other revival in history. Uh, one of the distinguishing features was its territorial scope, uh, geographical scope. It began simultaneously and independently, without coordination, other than the coordination of the Lord himself. Uh, simultaneously and independently in various uh, European countries. Uh, the power that brought the Reformation into existence, uh, of course, and made its progress possible were the Holy Scriptures, uh, the Bible. The Greek New Testament, prepared by Erasmus, the great uh, humanist scholar, not humanist in the sense we think of today as an unbeliever, but uh, uh, the old sense of humanist scholar, uh, great scholar, Erasmus. Uh, was a help to scholars all over Europe in learning the way of truth and life. And after the Reformation once got underway, uh, there became a great friendship and a great cooperation and fraternization among the Reformers in the various nations. Uh, the Reformation spread with tremendous rapidity, uh, bringing with it a complete change in thought and conduct. Uh, and that, that's one, one of the amazing events of history. Uh, the invention of movable type uh, coincided uh, with all of this. So the Lord brought all of these things together. Again, much as, as he had done uh, 
on the early church with the Roman Empire we talked about with the trade routes and the, uh, and the, the, the great roads that the Romans built. Uh, again, the time of the Reformation was a, was a, it was a ripe fruit. Uh, the Lord had created uh, the, the right conditions uh, for the spread of the gospel and the spread of the Holy Scriptures so that uh, down to the, the common psalmist, could have his own scriptures and, and read the Bible if, if, he, if he were literate. Literacy uh, was, uh, was expanding as well. Um, the remarkable characteristic of the Reformers was the basic agreement on important doctrines. Uh, now, the tenet upon which all Reformers did agree was justification by faith alone. In other words, not, it's not, you're, you're not right with God, which is what justification means, uh, because of something you do. Uh, it's your faith in Christ. In fact, Scripture says the faith of Christ is what saves us. They believe that salvation is not obtained by works, good deeds, not that they're not important, but they come after you're saved, not before. Uh, but it's not obtained by fasting, by giving money to the church, or doing penance, uh, etc. But salvation is God's free gift. This doctrine formed the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. And despite the claims of Rome that the Church has recognized the authority of the Bishop of Rome since the beginning, and you've heard this many times, uh, history proves that that's simply not the case. Uh, some of the more prominent proto-reformers before the, you know, the Reformation doesn't, didn't begin with, with Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the, the door at Wittenberg. Uh, it, we, the, the, there were reformers long before that, uh, proto-reformers. Uh, uh, Luther lit the, lit the flames. He, he started the fire. Uh, but it was smoldering many, many years before that. Uh, we call them proto-reformers coming before the uh, actual Reformation. Uh, some of them include Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. Milan had a glorious history. Of, of being faithful to the scriptures. Um, he served uh, from uh, in AD 374 to 397, Ambrose. Uh, uh, Rufinus, who was the first metropolitan in the diocese of Milan in the 5th century, and his successors, again in Milan, uh, including Laurentius in the 6th century, uh, Mansuetus, who was another bishop of Milan, uh, and in the 8th century, Paulinus, uh, the bishop of uh, Aquileia, um, Claudius, the Archbishop of Turin in the 9th century, another proto-reformer who believed many of the things that the reformers uh, uh, taught uh, long before they came on the scene. As late as the year 1059, the clergy in Milan said to Damians, the papal legate, that their church, quote, according to the ancient institutions of the fathers, was always free without being subject to the Bishop of Rome. That was 1059, as late as that. They said, we're not subject to the Bishop of Rome. He's no pope over us. He's no, no higher than the bishops of, of Bishop of Milan. So the Reformation was a continuous, all-enveloping movement across many nations, transforming them by the gospel of God's grace. It was a glorious spiritual awakening. Well, we see the Reformation, and it went back to the earliest... The, uh, the gospel of the earliest church and it really restored the faith of the early church. The early church itself went out from Jerusalem. We saw it went to many different parts of the world and we've traced some of that glorious histories in Asia, 
in Ireland and Belgium and in different parts of Europe, it went forward magnificently. And it had started from Jerusalem, going out across the world. And it was the gospel of God's grace that changed the world that was floundering at the time. Well, when Christ came into the world, the Roman Empire had been established, universality had been established, there was the Pax Romana, peace of Rome, and but there was an emptiness. People were dead in trespass and sins, and the gospel changed the lives of men and women, and magnificently so. The city of Rome began for 250 years with a wonderful gospel, as we know. We saw that the dregs came in in the 4th and 5th century. The church had so declined in the city of Rome that it was just a substitution now for hierarchy and dead rituals. And it became worse in the 5th century when a priesthood had been introduced to mediate. And then it became worse as it was recognized by Justinian in the 6th century and then by Livron in the 7th century, by Phocas, it had more and more civil authority. And then it just rose to an infamous place where we became the persecutor of the believers right across the world. So not only was the Church of Rome not the first church, but it only came about in the 4th, 5th century with the utter decline from what had been Christianity. And it has come into being not only apostate, but persecuting the true believers. So this is the, the story of the early church, and it needs to be heard that the gospel went forth, and the gospel to free people from their sins. Men and women embraced the true gospel. People of Africa, of Egypt, of Gaul, of Germany, of Ireland, of Britain, of India, had their eyes opened, the gospel of God's grace went forward. And this is the message that is preached, and that is the same message that was preached by the early church is preached today in the gospel of God's grace. And there was a stark contrast between this, the church of Rome, and the paper church. And I'd like you to comment on that, please, Bill. Well, that, that stark contrast, Richard, is certainly true. Uh, and I think this uh, video hopefully has made that very clear. And I would encourage people to uh, replay this video and, and study what has been said and check it out. Uh, look at the scriptures. Look at uh, uh, commonly accepted uh, accurate history. Uh, because in stark contrast to the apostles and elders of the First Church of Jerusalem, the Pope of Rome with his hierarchy of cardinals and prelates, archbishops, bishops, priests, they proclaim their dogmas, uh, the, the teachings of the, of the uh, Roman Catholic uh, Church as infallible, and they proclaim their sacraments are the means of grace. Thus, the papacy is contrary to the Bible, because the Bible doesn't teach uh, that any man's word is infallible. Uh, uh, only God's word is infallible. Uh, and it's contrary to the authentic church of history the church of, of the Bible. In fact, the papal system, with its idolatry, uh, with its inquisition, 
with its claimed infallibility, shows itself to be the woman uh, of the book of Revelation sitting upon the scarlet-colored beast. The same woman, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, is still today making merchandise of the saints and purporting to dialogue with true Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that cannot be. Like true believers of old, we have to enter the battle. This is the, you don't hear this term much anymore. You used to hear it a lot. You read, read the old Christian books, old Puritan books. Uh, the church on earth was called the church militant. The church in heaven is called the church triumphant. But we're not in heaven. We're on earth. We're part of the church militant. Uh, as, as the hymn says, onward Christian soldiers. Uh, we have to enter into battle. Uh, and there is a battle. Uh, Paul reminds us the battle is spiritual. Uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, but we do wrestle against satanic powers. The Lord is with us. We will have the final victory. You know, I, I've, I've read the last book of the, of the Bible. It, uh, we, we do win. Uh, but the command of the Holy Spirit in the words of Scripture is still this. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Yeah, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We're promised that. Uh, we will batter them down with the word of God. Uh, the certainty, we can be certain, uh, the scripture tells us we are to know that we have eternal life. Find that in the book of 1 John. To know that we have eternal life. The certainty that we know the Lord, that we are his, uh, is, is a tremendous, tremendous uh, assurance of faith. And it should give us encouragement. Uh, it should give us uh, a, a resolve to enter into the battle and to know that we are on the Lord's side and victory will be ours. Richard? Yes, indeed, victory will be ours. And we rejoice that we know the early church and we know the joy it was. Those men and women who went and to died for the faith with joy under the persecutions in the early church. Those who died in the Inquisition rejoicing that their salvation was in Christ and Christ alone. It is amazing how Bible believers have been true to that faith that went out from Jerusalem and went across the world. I had the privilege of being in China for a year. It was the year of Tiananmen Square, and it was amazing to see the believers there really being true to the Scripture and to the faith that is in Scripture. They were very conscious that they were in line with what had been the early church. It's amazing this China and the revival that has gone on in China for over 40 years since the time of Mao Zedong. It's amazing to see the spread of the true gospel in China and right across the world, people conscious of the gospel of what the early church was. And that's what we have tried and in this video presented to you the authentic early church established by Christ on his own person, the gospel of grace. And we ask that before the all-holy God that you know that you're right before God, that you turn to him by grace alone, through faith alone, and that you also can rejoice that he is 
your God in Christ Jesus and that you can go forth and proclaim the gospel and that you know your history and the history of the authentic early church so that God is glorified in all things and we truly praise him all praise, glory, worship and honor be to the Lord God Almighty in and through Christ Jesus Amen and Amen praise God Check out our website, BibleQuery.org. This site answers 7,700 Bible questions. HistoryCart.com. This site reveals early church history and doctrine, proving Roman Catholicism is not historically or doctrinally viable. MuslimHope.com. This site is a classic refutation of Islam, a counterfeit religion created by Muhammad. Free newsletters are also available. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.